Today's guest is someone I've been looking forward to speaking with for quite a while. Brett Jones is the chief instructor over at Strong First. He's also a very accomplished uh, strength athlete and trainer. He bent the red nail, which is a feat of strength that not many people have accomplished in history. And I believe he was the 11th person ever to do that. And uh, he's, uh, as I mentioned, chief instructor of Strong First. And if you follow me on Instagram, you may have uh, seen that I've been messing around with kettlebells quite a bit. Main thing is, I mean, I've been interested in fitness uh, for most of my life and fitness and strength training was actually my entry point into personal development when I was lost 15 year old and going through my first existential crises. I happened to meet another kid similar to me who introduced me to Pumping Iron, Arnold Schwarzenegger's documentary. And we spent that summer um, basically smoking weed, philosophizing and, and lifting weights. And it was the first time I recognized like, oh, if I put effort into something in the right way, I can change myself, I can change my reality, which got me into spirituality and other things. And as I've gone deeper into the psychological side of growth. I've kind of, uh, you know, maybe I haven't really put as much attention on physical culture, even though it's been an interest. And only in recent years, as I've been working specifically with men more, I have re-recognized like it's the most obvious thing, if especially for men, maybe for everyone, but especially for men because of our androgen systems and the fact that uh, testosterone is such a critical thing in our well-being and mental state and, and happiness and fulfillment and performance in, in many areas of life. If you are looking to improve yourself and your body is soft and you're not doing strength training, you're leaving a lot of growth on the table. So last couple of years, I've been encouraging a lot of guys to lift some iron in some form or another. I, I've recommended the Strong Lifts app just because it's a simple way to go, even though it's not a philosophy I think is most useful in strength training. But anyway, in the last year, I've been like, you know what, let me actually uh, get a little more education. So I signed up for um, the kettlebell instructor certification with Strong First with Brett Jones actually in Italy. Probably is not going to happen with the state of the world right now, but I was excited to speak with him anyway, because I've been familiar with kettlebells for a while. I, I didn't really get a lot of the workings or philosophies. And one of the things that drew me to Strong First and Pavel's work and Brett's work specifically is that the nuances of their like strength philosophies match very well with my life philosophies on a metaphorical level and but also just like on a practical level of injury prevention, keeping things fun, looking at strength as a skill and, and something that is primary virtue. I mean, anyway, I don't mean to beat the metaphors to death, but um, I was very excited to speak with Brett. Um, he shared a lot of great wisdom on fitness, of course, but also I, I really love his mindset. And like, we only mentioned stoicism a little bit towards the end, but he has a very Zen-like approach of simplicity towards strength training, which I think is a very virtuous way to look at life. So I was very excited to speak with Brett. Hope I get to train with him in person in the near future. And I hope you enjoy this episode. You can find more of Brett's work at AppliedStrength.com or look at his uh, huge archive of articles at Strong First. I'm sure wherever you are, you're probably experiencing some level of lockdown or some level of quarantine. A lot of us have to be inside or should be inside more often, which is a bummer for many of us. But uh, it's also a great time to cocoon and reinvent yourself and study things you haven't been able to study and spend time doing less and thinking more and, and, and working within yourself, which is why, I mean, the Archetype class is still available at rwando.com slash archetype. And I have reinstated the free coaching session that comes with that. So if you sign up, for the 21 Day Mask and Archetype Challenge, which is full of exercises and missions and meditations to access the stronger parts of your unconscious. If you join now, you can also uh, get a one hour video call with me to discuss exactly that because this is what I like to do. Um, and this is a great time to reinvent yourself or discover new parts of yourself. So you can access that at rwando.com archetype. Right now you're listening to episode 079, Brett Jones, Strong First. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, part of the Gotham Podcast Studio Network in New York, New York. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Brett. Uh, so glad to have you here. I've been looking forward to this uh, for a long time. So thanks for doing this in these uh, troubled times. Absolutely, Ron. It's uh, fantastic to have the chance to uh, chat and to, with you and your audience. Yeah, for sure. And um, I don't know if you know, I'm, I'm signed up for the SFG training with you in Italy. Hopefully that still happens, but uh, I've been signed up for a while. Well, um, hopefully it does still happen. Uh, obviously, the situation in Italy is um, pretty intense and uh, they've got a, a lot going on. And um, so the, uh, uh, you know, one of the, um, well, not not to dive in too deep right off the uh, the end, uh, I actually start uh, treatment for cancer on uh, this coming Monday, a week from today, gotcha. and I'll be finishing that treatment um, 
in mid-May, but the side effects tend to last for a couple of weeks afterwards. So it's it's doubtful whether I'll be uh, attending the uh, the SFG in June. So, uh, gotcha. but uh, if it does happen, Fabio Zone will be there, and I know Fabio will get you uh, well taken care of. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, and uh, yeah, thank you for being vulnerable up top uh, and sharing that. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, um, so as you may know, this is not a fitness podcast uh, per se, but um, I do often speak about psychology and a lot of times when guys reach out to me, what can I do for better self-esteem or whatever, first thing I, recommend, I ask is, are you, are you doing strength training? And then after a while, people started to ask me, well, what should I do for strength training? I was like, well, I'm not qualified for that, so let me, let me seek out some instruction. And I found Strong First and kind of binge listening to a lot of your um, podcast appearances and stuff. And just so we all start on the same page, um, can you explain uh, what maximal strength is and why it's called strong first and why it's so important in the philosophy towards fitness? Sure. Um, I'll kind of flip the order there. Um, Within strong first, one of our primary principles uh, comes from a a Soviet professor, Metviev, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of the name. Uh, but, uh, one of his key principles was that, uh, strength is the mother quality. Uh, it's the forms the foundation for all other physical qualities. So strength is this foundation. Eric Cressy used to refer to it as, uh, maximal strength is the glass and, uh, the bigger, the more strength you have, the bigger, the glass, the more physical qualities you can put in the glass. And so we believe that strength forms the foundation for, many other, not only physical attributes, but to your point, many personal attributes uh, as well. And being physically strong does uh, come, I I believe, comes with uh, a lot of confidence and uh, a lot of things that help us uh, kind of in our daily daily lives. And uh, maximal strength itself, uh, you'll run into a lot of uh, definitions on strength and, and things like that. Uh, I believe Zatsiorski referred to it as um, the ability to produce force under given conditions. Um, so it, that could be, and that opens the, the doorways. So it's not just a 1RM deadlift. That could be body weight. That could be, you know, a lot of other things fit into that. So our ability to produce force, either internal or external, um, against or without, uh, against an external load or without an external load, our ability to produce force. And, um, as far as definitions go, like, is there any way like, uh, that, that is quantified or is it just more as a concept? Like I'm thinking like, well, is that for reps or how much you can move? I mean, those seem like such different qualities. They are. And so it, but if we, if we stick with the definition that, uh, it's your ability to produce force under given conditions, um, now a repetition pull-up uh, rep max um, makes sense. You know, that's your ability to produce X number of force over time uh, in that given activity. A 1RM deadlift makes sense because, and by 1RM, that's obviously a weight that you can only lift once. So um, we take, within Strong First, we take a very, I'm going to say a more scientific approach. Um, Intensity is not, um, I'm going to date myself here, but if you're familiar with the old movie, uh, Over the Top, uh, it's an old Stallone movie. If if you and your your audience, (laughs) if you're not familiar with it, it's a classic 80s Stallone movie. Um, And the character is an arm wrestler. And when he wants to get psyched up for his arm wrestling, he takes his ball cap and he turns it around backwards. So the bills in back and that's him flipping his switch and turning from nice guy to not nice guy for the purpose of the, of the arm wrestling. So we tend to think of intensity or intensity has been put out there as um, this. It's a facial expression. It's a grunt. It's a groan. It's a scream. It's I'm being intense. Um, intensity from a training standpoint is a percentage of your one RM or a percentage of your repetition max. Um, that allows us to get way more specific with what we're trying to train and how we're trying to train it. Gotcha. Um, so just so I understand strength in the way we're speaking of it is based on what you're doing, right? There's no, like, there's no quantity, like absolute quantity when you're talking about maximal strength. Is that right? Correct. Because, um, when, when you open those doors, I mean, I, uh, my wife is a former uh, professional dancer, 
and I've been to quite a few uh, ballet and, and modern dance performances, and you watch uh, these uh, dance athletes uh, doing these uh, amazing uh, things, uh, producing uh, tremendous leaps and bounds and, and, and doing high power activities. Um, that strength, um, it, it doesn't fit our, some of our personal definitions. You know, I have a history of everything from powerlifting and bending nails and strongman training and doing a bunch of different stuff. So my personal uh, preconceptions on strength would certainly lead me uh, towards that direction. However, um, the, the dancer, the, the 95 pound dancer that's, um, you know, leaping unbelievable leaps. You look at Barishnikov and um, uh, so many other examples within many different realms, um, strength and, and another central principle within strong first, we believe strength has a greater purpose um, that takes us into a lot of different realms. You know, the parent that is working two jobs and not putting food on their plate so their kids can eat is living the ideal that strength has a greater purpose. Gotcha. And um, you mentioned the red cap thing. I, I, I was going to ask you about this much later, but we could jump in. Um, so I know you've met the red nail. You've, uh, you're very accomplished in uh, strength performance and uh, competition. Um, but I, meant, I heard you mention um, some of like, in passing your mindset when you go into something like that. And I, one line I caught you say is you go to a dark place. Mm -hmm. uh, can you explain what that means? Because that, that, I thought it was really interesting. I felt like you just went over that whenever I heard you speak about it. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's almost difficult to explain. Um, I, I think you, and it's, uh, it's almost back to the Stallone, you know, turning the ball cap around backwards. Um, I'm not somebody that's sniffing, smelling salts and banging my head on stuff and, and screaming to get psyched up. Um, I'm a little more in the, the Bruce Banner Hulk uh, line of things where I'm angry all the time. So <laughs> it, it's easy for me to flip the switch and focus my energies. And in something like uh, bending steel, um, you are focusing a tremendous amount of tension effort uh, into that. And um, really extraneous thoughts go away. Um, the focus becomes on getting in position and, and producing the force and bending the nail. <clears throat> Pardon me. And in my mind, that just felt like a, I would go blank and be in a dark place, but it was a dark place with focus. <clears throat> Pardon me. And intensity. Uh, so, so you meant dark in the sense of like uh, the lights are not on, not dark like axe murderer type thing oh exactly oh yes uh, okay yes. <laughs> all right yeah i'm just I'm, to clarify I'm, uh, <laughs> thanks for catching that yeah. um because yeah to me it's just it's the tunnel vision it's the focus um e everything narrows and directs me to that goal and uh where did that come from in you or is that something you're able to train or is that something that came out through playing sports like because that seems like a very critical skill that maybe a lot of athletes and people don't have um, that's a, I've never been asked that question. Um, I, I'm going to say it's a combination, uh, of, of an innate ability, uh, to focus in, in strength related things, but then also just in the process of bending nails and, and really, uh, some higher level strength feats. Um, I, I think it was, uh, it was, I'm going to use the term, it was revealable via the training. I think it's something that was there that I could capitalize on uh, via the training. Um, so I don't know if it was so much developed by uh, as it was revealed by uh, the training. Gotcha. Yeah, it's so interesting because, um, you know, a lot of people speak about focus and the importance of mindset or positive thinking. But when it comes to strength, you're actually looking at different numbers, like is actually quant either you lifted the weight or not. And um, I'm curious if you, if you, I don't know if this is beyond outside of what you teach or work with, but like how mindset can actually change how much you lift. Like I've heard many hypnotherapists, for instance, talk about strong men becoming weak if they get psyched out, or you know, many of us who played sports have experienced choking at one time or another, which is the opposite. Like, uh, is that anything that ever gets covered in your 
trainings or strong first or anything you have any ideas on of how to create greater performance? Um, I would say uh, one of our authors and, and uh, a friend and mentor to, to Pavel is Judd Biasiotto. Um, and I probably just butchered his last name, but you can find his book, uh, Psych, on the uh, Strong First website. Um, and he has a career in uh, helping people achieve higher levels of performance and, and uh, focusing uh, the mind. Um, and uh, so that, that would be a resource that I would point to. It's not something that we necessarily cover. Um, we teach things in the reference of being a strength professional and uh, knowing how to focus your energies towards the more physical uh, displays. Um, the yeah, so that that would be um, yeah. I think that. Gotcha. Okay, I'll, I'll look it up. I just find it so fascinating because um, I didn't really think of in these terms when I was an athlete, but. Certainly in high school wrestling, you can see most of the time at lower levels, the match is decided in the stare down or the handshake. And, you know, you see a, a guy lose his courage and then all his strength goes away. And, uh, yeah, so when I heard you speak about the dark place stuff, I was really fascinated. Yeah, and I, I don't, I, uh, not having, I mean, I wrestled in high school, um, junior high and high school, and, and that was another area where you, it was just you and your opponent. And so the, the narrowing of focus and knowing what you had to do was certainly right there uh, in front of you. Whereas, you know, you take a team sport like basketball and, you know, you're running down the court and there's a lot of other variables in play, um, probably easier to get uh, distracted from, from, the, from the mental standpoint. Um, if you got distracted on the mat, you typically got pinned uh, yeah. <laughs> and had a, had, a, had a bad day. Yeah. Um, so maybe that was something that I carried over with me into the strength practice. And, and again, that revealable kind of trait of just being able to, mm -hmm. uh, to focus. I mean, the other aspect of some, um, higher level strength feats is it's uncomfortable. Um, even though we wrap the ends of the nail so that it doesn't go through your hand, um, you, it's uncomfortable to bend steel, uh, with your hands. And uh, so you, there, there's a, there's an aspect of ignoring um, a painful or uncomfortable situation in order to accomplish the goal that gets involved in some uh, strength feats that uh, perhaps may not get involved in other very high level athletic feats and just some differences. Because mm -hmm. I imagine, I mean, there's a pointy, it's a natural nail, right? It's a uh a pointy mm -hmm. end and a, and a head. I gotcha. Well, um, well there's those, and then there's the actual red nail, which is more a uh, piece of cold rolled steel. So it, uh, it's not a traditional nail, but it is a cold rolled steel rod, uh, seven inches in, in length, five sixteenths, uh, inch uh, thickness. And, um, yeah, it's, it's fun. Gotcha. Haven't done it. <laughs> um, how did you get into? Uh, did you go from sports into strength training? Like, how did that fascination start, or how did you get into this line of work? I had a I had a tremendous example uh, from my dad. Um, my uh, we're having a thunderstorm, so if you hear some thunder in the background, uh, that's that's what's going no on. Worries. Um, the uh, I had a great example from my dad, uh, probably forty some odd years ago now. Um, he started, he had quit smoking, gained some weight, decided to go to the gym and start training. And, and he, he was always kind of a strong guy, uh, but he had, you know, he'd gotten uh, heavier as a result of quitting smoking. And, and I just saw him get up every day at 4:45, go to the gym, uh, do his workout. Um, when I was wrestling, I would go with him. Um, so I had, I had a great example, uh, from my family, from my dad. And then being in wrestling that got me started. Um, I was always a little bit of a strong kid. I was good at pull-ups. Um, and, uh, then I went to college and I was an athletic trainer and I did nothing, uh, pretty much for about four years, um, almost six years and, uh, cause grad school as well. And, and then, um, I, I, uh, kind of returned to training as I returned from athletic training to the fitness industry. Gotcha. And, um, it you got into kettlebells and that style of uh, training a couple of years into your professional career. Is that right? Um, a couple more years down the road. Uh, okay. But, uh, <laughs> so I, I would have taken my first job in 95. Um, so uh, 
uh, let, let me think, 90, sorry. Yeah, 95 to 97, I was at uh, Military Academy of Virginia as an athletic trainer and then uh, ran a hospital fitness center from uh, 97 to 2002. And uh, it was during that time that I became aware of Pavel. Um, somebody that had worked for me brought in, uh, you know, told me, hey, you should need to check this guy out. And I got power to the people and uh, actually started deadlifting and doing some things. And um, then, of course, they started producing kettlebells and the original Russian kettlebell challenge book. Which, true story, I got it, I read it, and I put it in the desk drawer. <laughs> like, I'm like, ah, I can do all that with a dumbbell, blah, 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 blah. I, I put it away. But it was always gnawing at the back of my head. And so I eventually, a couple months later, I pulled it back out. I uh, hooked up a dumbbell with about 50 pounds and tried one of the snatch workouts that was, that was in the book. And when EMS revived me, I decided I should probably, uh, that's, that's a joke, by the way, uh, EMS did not have to revive me. <laughs> Uh, from my snatch workout. Gotcha. But, uh, I, uh, I I decided I should probably get some training in this and attended his second ever workshop in February of 2002 and then uh, uh, started teaching with Pavel in uh, April of 2003. Um, your pre-Pavel training or philosophy, was it, because I know that, I mean, take t typical American bodybuilding culture, like what most people know about training, training till failure, three sets of eight reps or whatever. That's, that's what I grew up in high school hearing from everyone. Um, it's very counter to a lot of the strong first principles. Was that like a class, like a internal culture clash when you, when you started training that way or were you already kind of in that mode? Uh, kind of already in that mode. And, and I mean, over the years, um, 25 plus years of, of doing this, I've been every guy I'm an air quotes guy. So if, uh -huh. if your audience isn't <laughs> looking at the video, then they can, they can picture me doing air quotes around mm -hmm. this. I've been every guy that you can be. I've been the, I've been a one set to failure hit Jedi. I've been the body weight guy, the functional training guy, the, I, I've been, I've been every version of, of trainer that you can, that you can be, I think. And, uh, it really, um, the, the, I remember it, uh, I was, this was 90, oh, 98, 99. I was at one of the first perform better learn by doing seminars and Juan Carlos Santana and Diane Vivas uh, were up on stage. And I was at this time, a one set to failure hit Jedi. And um, Juan Carlos gets up there and he says, uh, okay, muscles are dumb. They only do what the neurological system tells them to do. And I'm sitting in the audience like, yeah, but, yeah, but, oh, man, because he's right. And when you look at a lot of the bodybuilding or one step to failure and a lot of these things are after maximum stimulation of the muscle fiber to encourage growth, um, that's, again, even if you're able to do that, it comes back to the ability of the neurological system to guide the body towards that point. And you're saying that that's the most important thing in training, and it's not. Um, mm -hmm. Even even towards muscular growth, it's 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 maximum stimulation of the fiber is not uh, the the holy grail as far as that's concerned. Um, so that was kind of this turning point. Um, and I, I had I grew up on Arnold's education of a bodybuilder. Like mm -hmm. I uh, I'm very familiar with the the old bodybuilding methods and Arnold and and, and everything. And Franco, uh, rest his soul, who just uh, passed uh, in, in the last year. And, um, and then, you know, moving past that point where I kind of returned to good body weight training. Uh, I was working on my deadlift, power to the people, things of that nature. So there was that turning point where I, I, I was headed down what I would consider a, a not great uh, overall path and then uh, made, made a nice turn. Can can you uh, explain a little bit what you mean by the neural uh, neural training? I mean, because I've read it so many times, I honestly don't get it. Like, I understand how a muscle breaks down or regrows, but can you explain, like, when you're training your nervous system, what does that actually mean? Well, uh, everything we do targets the nervous system in some fashion. Like, you can't you can't say that you're training and not have the neural aspect uh, involved. And so. Um, it, when you try to reduce it down to the what's happening microscopically at the muscle fiber being the most important thing, 
you're missing the idea that the, the message to even do anything at the muscle fiber level has to come from the neurological system. So everything we do is neurologically based. Um, even those people that are training to failure and focused on the muscle fiber, neurological system still leading the charge. So when you step back and you look more from a neurological perspective, um, what you start to realize is the body functions in patterns. So it doesn't think bicep. It, you've asked the question, I want to pick this weight up. The answer is a bicep curl. Just depending on what the question you asked is the response. Mm -hmm. the, the, the body gets a solution. The brain forms a solution for that. So it doesn't think bicep. It thinks, move this from point A to point B, whatever the goal was. And so there's a pattern that is generated to make that thing happen. And we can draw that out to almost any activity. Um, and yes, there's aspects of movement variability in, in the conversation. You can get very muddy if you go down the motor learning rabbit holes and movement variability rabbit holes. But um, so that pattern we want to, and if we look at this more from a pure strength perspective, so I'm, I'm going to separate the conversation into more of a pure strength conversation versus a growth or size conversation. Um, from the pure strength perspective, I want to have, I want to be a formula one race car driver, uh, when it comes to my kettlebell press, when it comes to my swing, when it comes to my. I want to have uh, that high a level of precision and patterning involved in my swing, in my kettlebell press, in my bench press. Um, so to get good at it, to recruit uh, in the right pattern, shifting muscle groups at the right time, there's all these things that are happening from a patterning standpoint that have to do with how you're neurologically training or, or neurologically patterning that skill and training to failure can literally be training to fail. Um, you'll have a hard time finding a power lifter, an Olympic lifter, a uh, strongman competitor. Uh, they may train to failure at different phases with different specific exercises, uh, but you're not going to find that as a, as a main training tool uh, within those folks who are interested in, in really max uh, strength. Now, for the growth conversation, our take on it is you just need more volume. <laughs> so it's not training to failure. It's accumulating a larger degree of volume without training to failure. Uh, and if you eat and you stimulate, you will grow. And so, and there's, there's many roads to Rome. There are, you can go find many successful examples of folks that trained to failure and got very big and were bodybuilders and did X, Y, and Z. Um, but you're going to find on the, the strength end of things, um, definitely training to failure, um, encouraging um, kind of a, I don't know, a, a less than optimal neurological pattern. Um, I, I think we can do better. Yeah, I, I really, I mean, there's a lot of things I wish I knew earlier, but like um, when I was in high school, I wrestled and I boxed and every young boxer is trying to increase his punching power. So I would do tons of bench presses and lots of chest stuff and then lat stuff and then tricep stuff. And everyone would say like, oh yeah, weightlifting actually, it doesn't affect your punching power, makes it weaker and stuff. And I just thought that was, I don't know, I didn't really think much of it until only very recently did I do a one-handed kettlebell swing for the first time and realizing that like just the the moment where you have to shift the direction of the bell is exactly what a punch is. Like everything fires together. It's like, oh, this is what I should have been doing a long time ago. But, you know, I guess you just learn things when you learn things. Well, and it's always the mix. I mean, if you look at it, and of course, a lot of what I draw from is things I've learned from Pavel. And when you research like Russian boxing, they, they work on uh, various pressing and versions of bench press activities to a, to a pretty high strength level. And but it's in combination with I, I think that's one of the one of the differences is we we tend to uh, I don't know, it's U.S. culture, I guess, a uh, little bit all or nothing sort of uh, mindset and a little bit of strength there applied in the right way becomes better boxing. Um, it's it's not that a high bench press is going to make you a good boxer. You right. 
bench press to increase the strength and, and aspects of the pattern, you must then learn to apply it in the right fashion. And to your point, there are drills like kettlebell snatches, kettlebell swings that have what, what we have come over the years to term the what the heck effect, um, mm-hmm. that all I'm doing is swinging and snatching, but my pull-ups went up. Like I haven't even been training my pull-ups, but I'm able to do, I just set a new rep max on my pull-ups or I pressed a heavier bell because I was snatching or so we, we have this generalized kind of what the heck effect and uh, exercises that seem to have greater carryover from um, a narrow uh, specificity. Yeah. And with uh, just uh, just curious about the swings specifically, because you have to change direction uh, the way it's, it's done. Um, is most of the work happening just like from, because I noticed when I do a swing with a heavy bell, uh, it's more like my body's trying to just not let my arm fly out. <laughs> like it's like it's like it's not it's not the it's not the ex uh, was the concentric movement where I feel like I'm doing the most work. It's actually just like resisting or maybe normal force. Is that is that accurate or is it just in my head? Well, there's there's several things going on there, and and so if we look at uh, the swing as a projection of force, so you're producing uh, power via a hip hinge, very similar to a vertical leap or a broad jump, um, but you're not leaving the ground. And you're accelerating a weight, which then weighs much more than it used to because you're accelerating it um, and or has more force than the weight. And that, that gets into physics. I'm not yeah, centripetal force, something like that. Yeah, we're not <laughs> going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but now it's trying to pull you forward, and you have to root and not get pulled off your base. And so, yeah, there's there's a there's different qualities being trained. And I think one of the most unique things with the kettlebell swing is when you reverse gears and you have this unique loaded eccentric position. Um, I've been on a force plate two-handed swing with a 24 kilo bell producing over three times body weight eccentric load. Um, that's a nice return on investment uh, for mm. that, uh, for that weight. And so, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a few different things happening there. There's the, of course, this, the, the concentric you're producing power, but then you have to control that power and not let it pull you off base. So there's rooting and wedging and some things that get involved but then you have this great overspeed, loaded eccentric that really, I think, is, is one of the reasons for this what the heck effect that we talk about. Hmm. Um, I want to go back to something. Uh, actually, at the beginning, we were speaking about the different types of strength. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, is there a trade off? Because you see, I mean, you see people speak about this, especially in combat sports, like he's a great he he has one punch power, but then he gasses out. Like that seems to be the case, like between athletes. And um, is is that is that actually the case, or is it just people focus on different things? Or like, what is the deal with that? Is it possible um, to be at ten out of ten on, across the board? Is what I'm asking. I guess I don't think so. I, I think even if you look at uh, some of the greatest athletes in the world, the, the decathletes of the uh, Olympics who participate in the 10 different events and they're going to be really good at a couple of those events. And then if you look at them compared to the rest of the Olympic field in those specific events, meh, they're okay. Hmm. Yeah. They're still an Olympic level athlete. I mean, regardless of, of where they are, but the specialist in that field is going to far out, uh, outpace them uh, for that specific event, but they're going to be really good at uh, two to three events going to be okay at a bunch of the other events, probably going to have one that's a weak link that they're just trying to not finish last in. Um, and, you know, we're going back to the, God, this is really going to date me, the the Dan and Dave uh, era uh, in the 80s. Uh, anyway, that's, you have to look that up. The Nike and made a big deal out of it. Anyway, um, so if we, if we look at it from that perspective, even these very highly trained Olympic athletes can't be the best at everything. So you do have people like even for myself in, in upper body, uh, in reference to upper body, I uh, can be very strong, but I have very low endurance. I've never been able to do a lot of upper body work, but I can be very strong in my upper body work. And I'm able to operate at a very high percentage of my 1RM. Um, so I could knock off you know, sets of you know, three to five reps at uh, 90 some odd pounds 
but I was my my one RM was a uh, hundred and uh, hundred and six hundred and uh, I think I did a little bit more than that. I might have knocked out a hundred and ten or so pound pull up at some point, but so I was able to operate a very high percentage of my one RM, but endurance wise wasn't uh, wasn't all that great. But when I could have a pull up over a hundred, I was able to do ten reps at seventy. And so that high level of strength allows me to do more at a lower, uh, that's 70%, which you'd expect mm-hmm. to be roughly a, a 10 RM, uh, eight to 10 RM. So um, I, I think you do have people that uh, they're going to be uh, more fast twitch, uh, high power, uh, but not have great uh, endurance. Uh, this is one of the things that Pavel's trying to work on with the strong endurance protocols where uh, you're doing high power work uh, on this uh, repeated sprint interval sort of mindset with these cycles that are built in, uh, series that are built into the uh, training sessions. Um, and now we're trying to get this uh, ability to have this high power output on a repeated basis, um, which would probably be a benefit to fighters and grapplers. Gotcha. And uh, the idea behind that is like the, the lactic acid uh, prevention. Is that right? Uh, it's uh, so. Not really just one aspect. because okay. you, you can't prevent it. Um, and I would say training uh, has taken two different routes with this concept of lactic acid. And to be clear, lactate is an energy source in the body. Super cool. Your body loves it. The acid that comes along with it, however, can be the pr- that is the problem. That's that's the aspect of lactic acid that causes the problem. The lactate, super cool, body handles it really well. The acid needs to be dealt with. Um, And so training protocols have basically focused in two areas. Tolerance, how much of the burn can you take? Capacity, can we train you to be able to clear that acid in a more efficient manner so that your capacity to handle the acid is better? Um, the strong endurance protocols go in the direction of capacity, not tolerance. Um, so that's that's probably the best way to to describe that. Gotcha. All right. So uh, on that note, I'll, I'll reveal something. I've been training for the the SFG um, requirements. First time I looked at it, I was like, "Oh, this must be a piece of cake." I've been snatching for a while. I've been doing the quick and dead protocol for a while. I can snatch a much heavier bell for a couple reps than my test weight. So it's like, I didn't even bother testing. I was like, I'm just going to keep doing this quick and the dead thing. And I'm sure it'll be fine. Maybe like 10 weeks into training with the kettlebell, I tested myself and I did terribly. Like I, I think I stayed at pace only up into the 50 reps. And then I was like shot. Like I might've gotten another 10 reps out. Um, I'm sure the answer to that is more volume and more training, but in terms of, um, let's say hitting that uh, hundred reps in five minutes as soon as I, as soon as possible, is it better to train with shorter rest periods to like get used to the burn or get used? To, I, I was just wondering, is it a lack of endurance? Like what's the deal there? So it's uh, for a glycolytic event like the snatch test and there's no way around it. You're, you're knocking out a hundred reps in five minutes. It's a glycolytic event period. Um, so in your training, where that would take you is a, and it varies on the individual, but typically within a two to four week time frame, you can do what's known as a glycolytic peak and be ready for that event and not suffer quite so much. Um, if you've read Simple and Sinister, Pavel's uh, book, haven't. Simple and Sinister. Okay, he has a second edition out, um, revised and updated Simple and Sinister. And in there, he talks about this concept of timeless uh, training. And this was something that I had held myself to the clock for close to 17 years. Like I, I love, I I was, I had a weird relationship with my clock because I I just wanted to do everything by the clock, X number of rest, X amount of work, blah, 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 blah. So the concept in timeless is you start the clock and do your first set. So let's say the snatch test is 10 sets of 10, right? So you're going to do, and that's five sets on each arm. And you need to do that in five minutes. So you're going to start the clock and do your first set of 10, and you're going to ignore the clock. When you can pass the talk test, 
you continue uh, to your next set. And that's uh, so your goal. I'm, I've caught my breath enough that I can have a conversation. Exactly. Okay. You want to be able to do something like, uh, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance or um, some other ha- sing happy birthday or, you know, whatever, uh, gotcha. whatever the case may be. And so the uh, when you can pass the talk test, next set. And then once you've got your 10 sets done, record your total time. And you just do that over a course of training sessions, over a course of weeks. And what you'll see is the overall trend will be down towards the goal. And it's actually a more painless way to get to the snatch test. Um, I was using it in terms of training for uh, the simple and sinister goal, the, the sinister goal with the 48 kilo. And the first time I did uh, the timeless um, with 10 sets of 10 with the 48, um, it took me like 23 minutes. Uh, I was obviously being pretty generous with my rest, but the next time was like 21, 19, 17. I think I made it down to like 15 and then I went on a trip to teach and I was back up to 19 and then it was 17. And then it was, so it was, uh, it was a great way to, to train. Uh, It's, it's, it's honoring kind of this anti-glycolytic mindset. Um, it's getting you there where you're simply just able to do more in less time without the, the pain and the burn that you're talking about. So where I would take your snatch test training right now is I would say, let's go timeless. Let's grab the 24. Gotcha. Let's, let's do 10. When you can pass the talk test, do another 10. And when you've got your 10 sets done, record your time. Cool. Cool. Now, another metric that I've thrown in is to record my halfway time. So I'll get about, uh, I get that fifth set done and record how much time it took to get halfway. And the reason I do that is if halfway took me X, but finishing takes me Y, and it's a lot more than just doubling the first number, I push too hard during the first five minutes or during the first half. So it's a way for me to gauge uh, if I'm actually honoring that talk test in the, in the first five minutes or if there's something else happening. Gotcha. Well, that's good to know. So I probably could have done a little better if I didn't enforce <laughs> that those first five minutes. Oh, absolutely. Or, I mean, and then, yeah. and then fr- from like a strategy standpoint, one of the things that we run into is when you switch mindset from training to testing, uh, you tend to start sprinting. And I don't care how in shape you are, go run up a flight of stairs. What happens when you get to the top? Right. You, have breath. you huff and puff, yeah. right? So the, uh, when you shift into testing and you tend to go into a little more of a sprint, yeah, you're going to gas out. Uh, the pacing is a little too fast. The breath gets off. Um, there, and there is this, like I said, there is this difference in, in uh, energy system and, and glycolysis that, uh, that kicks in. Cool. I want to ask you about those in a, in a second, but I do want to speak on programming because, um, well, one for, for, for me, for instance, if I'm training for the snatch test, uh, would it be good to just do this timeless like snap? Should, should that just be my primary workout or is it beneficial to mix other things in? Uh, because like, as I've looked at the Strong First different protocols, I was looking at Naked Warrior. For, I was doing that for a while before I had a kettlebell. And then I don't, I, there's so many things that seem cool and interesting. I don't know how to fit it in uh, into a month or a week. So it's the, the decision making. Uh, and you're, you're coming down into the, the home stretch, I would say. You're within the, the last two to three months uh, prior to the, hopefully, the, the, the SFG1 still being held uh, in, in Italy. Um, so it is time to focus. It's, it's time to not get distracted, um, in, into some of these other activities. Um, so I'm going to table that for just a minute and then we'll talk a little more specifically as far as the, the kettlebell and getting ready for the level one. Okay. Um, I do have my level one prep program that's been out for a long time, um, available on the strong first website. And what you'll see there is I put together three training days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, and it's a variety of circuits and snatch work. And the reason I did that is there are a lot of people out there who are not used to training three days in a row. 
And so you go to the, the, the SFG level one, and you're going to be asked to do a lot in three days, uh, in particular the first two days. But third day is no picnic either because you've got uh, the technique testing practice, uh, snatch test, and the grad uh, practice session. So a lot of that happens on Sunday as well. Um, so it's a big weekend. And you need to know what it feels like to have to train three days in a row. And so I, I put the workout together like that. Monday's a rest day. Tuesday um, and Wednesday uh, are uh, training days, uh, a little more specific for the snatch test and building up some conditioning uh, for the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So Thursday's a day off. Um, and that was put together specifically because of the nature of the event. Um, I think for your training, you need a heavy swing day in there. Um, because if if all you're doing is moving a 24, 24 is going to start to feel heavy again. And you don't want that mm. for your snatch test. That that snatch test weight cannot feel heavy. Because the idea of stepping up and doing 100 reps of something that feels heavy, that's not fun. Mm. So we want to, uh, you should be one arm swinging at least the 32 for a very similar set rep protocol uh, as you are the 24 for your snatches. Gotcha. So I think that that will have benefit and carry over. So, um, so yeah, I would have a one or two timeless days. I'd have a heavy swing day and uh, I would have a couple of those circuit days in there uh, to, uh, to, to work on training X number of days in a row. And then, You'll see I have a, it's almost a glycolytic peak that's built in uh, to the snatch test protocol where it's um, Ethan Reeve years ago uh, coined the term density training. And what he would do is uh, take a goal, double it, and then start knocking that off in kind of a per minute protocol, but then keep increasing the reps and compressing the workload. So you stayed at the same total volume, but you kept accomplishing that volume in shorter periods of time, increasing gotcha. intensity. And so I think you could run a uh, four to five week uh, sort of ramp up on that density training protocol as you head into the event and feel very confident with your snatch test. Because you're uh, like, I have people that get down to, they'll do timeless passing, basically passing the talk test between sets of 10 snatches. They're knocking off a snatch test in six six and a half minutes hmm. well the journey hmm. the journey to five minutes is pretty like that's a jump you can make um yeah and that's timeless like you're passing the talk test in between sets so it's a it's definitely a more painless way to get there gotcha and uh for for anyone else though let's say uh who isn't looking at sfg requirements um where do you, how, how do you suggest programming with like the barbell stuff versus body weight stuff and we've been every kind of guy uh, is there any way you suggest someone for overall fitness or general strength? Yeah, I think um, it obviously depends on what tools and modalities you would like to work on. Um, in essence, from a general standpoint, I'm going to say everything can be done. Uh, it just depends on what you want the main focus to be. And then if you're going to try to do several things, understand you're going to be doing a little bit of each of those things. Um, nobody, nobody runs specializes in the hundred meter and the marathon. Like you just, you don't get to do that. You, you got to pick and choose. So from very basic standpoint, you're going to pick one to three strength exercises. You'll work on those from uh, three to five sets of three to five reps protocol um, one of my favorite ways to progress is, is take like a five by three, five sets of three, work with that weight until you can do five by five, then increase the weight and go back to five sets of three. Um, I've been giving people that, uh, for years. Um, it's not sexy. It's not exciting. There's no, uh, complicated, uh, math involved. It's just, uh, put the work in over time and you get stronger. And so pick one to three strength exercises that you'd like to be better at. Um, a, a deadlift, a press, and a pull are not bad um, uh, choices. Um, if you're 
swap out or do a squad or you know there's there's lots of options within that um uh, i love keeping the get up in there uh as a way to uh check in with right and left sides uh to maintain uh mobile stable shoulder um tied upper and lower body together I like having the get up in there as a way to finish any movement prep or warm up that I'm doing prior to the strength work. And then some form of conditioning. Um, I like swinging and snatching a uh, kettlebell. Some people are going to want to run hill sprints. Um, so there's, there's lots of different options there. Uh, it could be the, uh, what is it, the air assault bike now? Um, there's, there's, or rowers. I mean, there's tons of different things that you could do for that conditioning aspect. The, the one thing I would put in people's heads or get them thinking about is, and I've been saying this for a little while now, rest is the most abused training variable out there. Um, we think it needs to burn. It needs to suck. We want to, you know, we want to reach that point where we can't do anymore. Um, and certainly from time to time, uh, actually very infrequently, yes, you want to find out where that where that edge is so that you can better gauge you know, where the rest of the, the intensity and everything. But from a general standpoint, uh, people don't rest enough, whether that's between strength exercises where your rest should be towards a three to five minutes. Um, now that doesn't mean you do a set of deadlifts and you, and you just do nothing until five minutes has passed. Although that's an option. I mean, when I was powerlifting and I was squatting heavy, I love to go in the gym do my prep, I'd knock off my first work set for my squats, and I'd go walk around the gym for five to seven minutes, uh, social butterfly, mm -hmm. and then I would come back and do my next set and rest again for five to seven minutes. And uh, people struggle with that. They struggle with rest. Um, it's okay to rest because what's everybody concerned about right now? How am I going to recover from my training? We have this yeah. entire cottage industry of recovery strategies that's cropped up here and it's all in my opinion it's basically all based on uh bad programming where you're not resting enough and lifestyle issues if you're sleeping four hours a night and working two jobs and wondering why you're not recovering from your training i, I don't think it's your training <laughs> i think there's some other things we need to work on there uh what do you think about training while sore I'm going to say it depends. Okay. Um, and this is where we talk about the concept of waviness. Um, if you've trained hard enough to get sore or you've done something, uh, let's separate the conversation. If you've done something new or different and you get sore, it's usually because you did something new or different. If you take your programming you just have a day where you're like, I'm going to do a thousand reps and you get sore. Those are two different sores, right? One is from overload, too much work. One is because you did something new because we can all have that experience. You don't squat for, you know, a year and then you crawl back underneath the bar. It's a really uncomfortable three to five days, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're struggling to get down to the toilet and everything else. So, um, Something new sore, overload sore. Now, the solution is somewhat similar. You need to do something. You need to encourage the blood flow. You need to encourage the body moving the waste products and the gunk, very scientific term, uh, out of the body, right? So you need to do something, but it needs to be way less than the thing that got you sore. Um, so yeah, we want to do something. We want to train and try to, uh, move the body and help with that soreness. Uh, but it needs to be something of low intensity, but increasing that blood flow so that you recover better from, from the soreness. Gotcha. And uh, I know you, you've trained athletes. Um, do you, how do you modify training knowing that they're going to have wrestling practice or something like that? Like, do you just, just decrease the volume or is there something else you do? It, it's, yeah, I mean, it's really, hopefully there's a conversation with the coach uh, to say athlete Susie needs to be better at X. This is the weak link in her performance. 
So then from a, from a training standpoint, I can take that information and go, okay, this is how we're going to target that. Um, to your point of a grappler that might uh, maybe Susie is an MMA fighter and she gasses out towards the end of her, uh, her rounds. Um, that's, that's information that I can take and start building a protocol that's going to help with that. Um, this will sound like an unrelated topic, but bear with me. Um, because when you work with volleyball players and basketball players, uh, you know, the concern jumping is a skill that they need to be good at. But you have to think about how many times they're jumping during their practice and during their competition. Now you start training jumping in your programming, you will overload that athlete and you'll probably not do them any favors. But some good low rep strength work might just give them the ability to produce more force in their jumping, which they're already gotcha. practicing for hundreds of reps in competition and in practice. And so it's, it's understanding the activity and knowing that there's certain things that you're actually not going to train because they're doing enough of it. <laughs> they're, they're, like I said, the volleyball player, the basketball player, you know, little athlete Susie, if she's a basketball player, she's jumping a lot. If she's a volleyball player, she's jumping a lot. What I want to do is support that jumping with quality movement, make sure the ankles are mobile, make sure her strength base is good, and an exercise like the kettlebell swing, where we develop uh, quick hips, powerful hips with that good eccentric load, and some single leg training, which will transfer over to, uh, to, to the goal activity. And then, yeah, the volume is going to be somewhat compressed. Um, you can get a little out of a lot, or a lot out of a little. Sorry, I flipped that. You can get a lot out of a little. Gotcha. Um, we, we skipped over it. I did want to, to speak about it a little bit. I think it's another one of these things that are not easy to understand. Uh, it's like the, you mentioned the glycolytic system. Mm -hmm. And uh, can, can you explain like the different energy systems and how that uh, relates to strength training? Sure. So um, broad strokes here and uh, keeping things, um, I'm going to say simple. Um, there's three main energy systems that the body operates off of, off of. There's this alactic or sometimes termed anaerobic, uh, sort of, uh, energy. Uh, that's a very quick, short burst. Uh, usually within 10 to 10 to 20 seconds, you're, you're done with that energy system, but that energy system is turning over and trying to get back up running. There's a middle system called the glycolytic system, which is kind of this almost, um, you know, look at it as an emergency system that exists as a bridge to the aerobic system. And if we look at this, the alactic system is this uh, energy that is set, ready to go, should you need it. Uh, it doesn't turn over all that quickly on its own to replace what's burned. We have the aerobic system. This is very efficient. This is, this is why we can go run a marathon and we can do an activity for two and three hours continuously because our body hits this aerobic state, hopefully, uh, where we're cranking over and producing energy in a very efficient manner. The middle system, uh, and understand that all three of these systems are always running. So even if you're alactic, there's one or 2% that's aerobic, and there's a small percent of glycolytic. So we separate them uh, because the dominance of work in that first five to 10 seconds is going to be the say lactic system. The dominant system, once you get past about, it varies on the individual, but let's say you get past three minutes, you're primarily aerobic with what you're doing. Um, so what happens in the glycolytic system is it's, it's the least, it's not, it's the least efficient energy system. It produces the most waste or byproducts. So that, that acid that we need to clear a lot of that happens within that glycolytic uh, energy reaction. And so the, the concept in training is do high power repeats where you get a little bit of acid, but not much because it's hard to build capacity to clear acid if you're not producing acid. So you work hard enough in these repeated right. sprint intervals in these series that Pablo has put together to where you clear the acid, but you do it efficiently so you're never getting overloaded where you clog the mechanisms and suffer some of the, the consequences of, of not clearing the acid well. 
Um, and is that uh, the idea behind like the like the thirty second? So I think we might have delayed, but a thirty second uh, rep. I've I've sorry thirty second set. I've heard that from people like looking for hypertrophy. They say thirty to forty seconds is the sweet spot. Is that accurate? Um, for for hypertrophy, because we do need a little bit of that uh, that glycolytics kind of that uh, stress uh, to be produced. Yes. Um, what you see from a, a power perspective is past um, 20 seconds, 15 to 20 seconds, you have a 50% drop off in power. Whether you want to have it or not, whether you think you're still being super powerful or not, you have a tremendous drop off in power past 15 to 20 seconds. Gotcha. Uh, I think we have. Uh internet's breaking down a little bit but i just have two last questions for you uh we're, we're coming to the end of the hour um i did i just want to ask you on, on mobility because i know uh, you work with uh fms and um I, i'll just i'll jump to my specific question around mobility um which is uh i only learned about the fascial systems recently and uh along with the quick and the dead i've been doing like these fascial elongation basically yoga programs focused on fascia and i don't know if it's in my head or not but i it seems that after i stretch my fascia in this way my force output is greater or my strength is better um is there something to do with fascia and strength or is that maybe in my head or is it just simply major motion oh boy um we may have to schedule another podcast um so the <laughs> <laughs> the 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 fascial system being this uh connective tissue um suit that we all wear that does have a lot to do with force transmission uh through the body but it's one of those things that's always been with us like fascia isn't new we didn't just add it to the system we simply understand it better so what that tells me is more than likely, because um, actually a, a pre-contracted muscle or a muscle that doesn't have its full range of motion or a pattern that doesn't have its full range of motion can never be as strong as a, as a muscle that, that does or a pattern that does have its full range of motion. So more than likely, as a result of the stretching and, and things that you're doing, you're simply uh, opening up allowing a full range within that pattern, which is allowing you to have uh, better strength and power within that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. I, I maybe I'll, I'll maybe send you some other questions on, on movement uh, some other time, but um, I did want to close with this because I, I heard you uh, uh, speak about stoicism in, in, a, in one of your podcasts and uh, this maybe could also be its own thing, but um, I was curious if you had any, uh, philosophy bits that you apply to strength trainings i know you look at strength as way more than just lifting iron or moving weight um is there anything uh, any anything that you you take philosophically to your training and that maybe we can share and end with well i think uh, one of the uh, one of the stoic concepts is memento more remember you will die um and that's not meant to be negative um, that is meant to remind you to live every moment. And part of being able to live every moment is having this physical base that allows you to go do the things you want to do. Um, you don't, you don't want to have to have help to accomplish some of these basic things in life. And you don't want to be restricted in some of these things that you would like to go do in order to live each moment. Uh, you don't want to be restricted by this idea. And there's, there's people that end up in different medical and, and you know, physical situations where they, they do have to operate differently uh, in, the, in their lives. But so if I want to live every moment, I need to be physically ready to live every moment. And part of that is having this base of, of physical strength and, and I'll use the term conditioning that allows me to pick up and go and do what I want to do. Um, if my wife were to say, you know, let's, let's go on a hike. I want to know that I can throw my boots on and, and go for a hike and enjoy the day, not survive the day. And so that strength, having a greater purpose is to allow me to, um, handle the emergencies and, and things in life that may arise 
to enjoy life uh, and do the best I can for myself and my family. Awesome. That's great. I love that. Um, yeah. Thanks so much, Brad. This has been really great. I hope you get to speak again at some point. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Uh, I know um, there, there were probably some some halts in the, in the internet. Uh, the, uh, the internet is being tested as never before uh, with, with global <laughs> lockdowns and people streaming right. Netflix and everything else. So uh, um, really appreciate you making time and, and having me on the podcast and uh, wishing everyone the best uh, through these challenging times. Yeah, thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to catch the rest of my work, go to Rwando.com. Catch me on social media, at Rwando. And please do not forget to subscribe.